Hi there, and welcome to the Head First podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, and I run the Instagram page at Head First Zero. I also run this podcast, which is called the Head First Podcast. Now, this podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, um, and that's the company that I work with. And what we do is we do uh, private mental health services offering counseling and therapy, and we also do corporate mental health, so mental health at work. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to uh, be joined by Isabella Robinson, um, who is going to talk to us all about diet, diet culture, um, where dieting comes from, some stuff about weight loss, intuitive eating, and all of the things that kind of surround that. So, um, Isa, thank you so Hi. much for um, joining me. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I'm delighted you could uh, you could give up your time. Um, if you could maybe introduce yourself a little bit about who you are, what you're maybe your educational background and where you've kind of worked before and how you got into that um, or this kind of field, that'd be great. Yeah, so um, I have recently just finished my MSc in eating disorders and clinical nutrition, um, which is a big kind of key interest of mine. Um, I have a uh, past past history of um, quite a negative relationship with food. So really succumbing to um, diet culture, which I'm sure we'll get on to talking about a bit more. And just feeling like food um, was a constant kind of battleground and something quite negative. Um, So I started my social media account, which was formerly um, kind of a wellness-based account. And over time, I realized that this perhaps wasn't the healthiest way of going about food and eating and exercise and all the rest of it. So I actually wrote my undergraduate dissertation um, on clean eating and on some of the dangers of that, how it relates to kind of feminist theories and um, uh, the self and kind of spaces of social media and how to navigate those. Um, I finished that and started a um, nutritional therapy program. And again, I was a bit... um, a bit concerned about kind of some of the things I was seeing, some of these kind of like um, massive headline claims about certain foods that could cure all all illnesses and prevent all illnesses. And it was kind of off the back of that, I applied to my master's at UCL. Um, so two years later, I am nearly a qualified associate registered nutritionist. And my passion is really to help people find food freedom. So um, rather than giving them a kind of meal plan, helping them to work out how they like to feed themselves, what they like to eat, um, what movement feels good for them, um, and kind of give them something that they can really take away for life rather than kind of follow for a shorter period of time. And that will kind of really bring in um, body image, identity, values, self-worth, and some really important things um, around the edges as well. So yeah, that's a, a little bit about me. I think that's um, that's really interesting. What you said there is that finding a way that works for everybody. And I think you'll probably agree that there is no kind of one size fits all in this. And I think that's a lot of what we see, the kind of narrative that's been driven to us through social media is that there is kind of a one way approach, like calorie counting is the way or keto diet is the way. And that kind of black and white uh, way of thinking is is very much pushed on us where, like you said, your kind of approach would be that there is no one size fits all for anybody. Would that be kind of relatively um, kind of where you where you lie? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think um, I think that's kind of where um, nutrition and dietetics sometimes the conventional approach is just to roll out um, kind of a meal plan or or a healthy diet plan. And whilst I'm sure that there are some foundational things that might be helpful for um, a large spectrum of people. 
Um, really, it's about kind of tuning into that individual. So working out, again, their preferences, their, their lifestyle context, you know, where are they doing their, their supermarket shopping, supermarket shopping, supermarket shopping what's their budget like like all of those little nuances that are totally overlooked when you might give someone a meal plan or kind of share what what you would eat in a day um which might not be helpful for somebody else in their particular context and and circumstances so yeah i'd 100 percent agree yeah, that agree it's definitely that. not a one-size-fits-all and i kind of like to use this saying that nutrition is kind of 50 shades of gray and even kind of the blanket health advice, um, which might seem really great at first, like eat lots of fruits and vegetables, when taken to extremes can have really detrimental effects. So there's always the nuance and there's always two sides of the coin. And, and it's really important to kind of kind of keep coming back to that in these converse, conversations around nutrition, especially because it's become such a trendy topic. It's really interesting that you brought that up, actually, because I remember one of my first few weeks when I started my job working where I am now and and we were talking with my I was talking with my clinical team about um, what is good for um, stress management and what is good for self-care. And I put forward that exercise is good for all these things. And my manager said, is exercise good for all those things? And I said, yeah, yeah, exercise is always good for, for those things. And they came back with, well, is exercise good if you have anorexia? Is exercise good if you have an eating mm. disorder? And it's like you said, it's not the one size fits all. So it's about taking all of those, I guess, little quirks and little uh, individualized um, aspects of dieting and, and being healthy, I guess, or having an overall healthy nutritional mm. plan um, that you need to take all those things into account. Um, I think just touching mm. on eating disorders specifically, we see a lot in the media now that social media, etc., is causing eating disorders. And I think part of that narrative is around diet culture. And I think one of the topics that I really want to talk about is is diet culture. From your perspective and what you've you've seen, how would you kind of define diet culture? I think it's important to maybe define it before we start talking about mm, it because some people 100%. might not really understand what what it is we talk about when we talk about diet culture. A hundred percent. I think that's a really great question. So diet culture um, is kind of this ubiquitous culture that I think we're living in right now. And it's basically anything that normalizes um, weight loss and kind of links morality to food and diet. So um, I think it helps to give some examples around this. So there are some really kind of blatantly obvious examples of diet culture. So things like Weight Watchers, Atkins, Slimming World. Um, um, I'm a member of a, of a gym and when you walk in, there's all these kinds of signs for weight loss. All those kinds of things would be kind of diet culture. So it's this kind of um, promotion of this thinness ideal. So it's, it's all about weight loss and, and achieving kind of society's I- ideal of slenderness. Um, but there's also kind of parts of diet culture that are much much less easy to kind of spot so these might be things like my fitness pal that is an example of diet culture it's kind of uh teaching us to kind of self-regulate to monitor to be vigilant to not respond to our internal kind of hunger and fullness cues but really 
it kind of at, at its core and essence is, is really kind of a weight loss strategy. Um, it might be a kind of the health app on 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 um, iPhones that kind of encourage you to track your steps again to achieve activity for weight loss. Um, it can even be when you see products in the supermarket that kind of have guilt free on them, suggesting that food is almost something we should feel guilty for eating, even though essentially it keeps us alive every single day. So there's a very blatant kind of diet culture where like diet is in it. So kind of diet food items, diet Coke, diet reduced fat. And then there's the really ubiquitous stuff, which is very hidden. So it might even be mannequins in shops where they have that really, really, really tiny waist that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily see many people in the street with that kind of body shape when I'm going about my day to day. So it's these really subtle things that we might not notice as well as the more obvious stuff. I mean, Kim Kardashian is a great example of diet culture with her <laughs> appetite suppressing lollipops. And it's kind of laughable because once you do start to notice it, you realize it's everywhere. I mean, I was on the tube the other day waiting for the tube to come and I was looking at a, a travel thing I think it must, must have been Scott Dunn or something and there's a six-year-old in the in the ad and she's holding her dad's hand and they're on a lovely holiday and she's got a six-pack and I'm thinking at what point do six-year-olds kind of have that kind of body shape and it's it's that subtle and, and it's really interesting once you do start to pick it apart and that morality piece in there as well so good and bad foods you know guilt-free and non-guilt-free and, and all those kinds of things where we suddenly start to internalize negative emotions with eating. Um, and I think that that is really harmful. I mean, it's all it's all harmful, but those kinds of emotions that stick with us, that, that we hold inside of us, that are much harder to let go of, um, they can really, really get into our food and eating habits and and they can be really, really um, loud, those noises every day and cause a lot of problems. And you may, I mean, you don't need to have a clinically diagnosed eating disorder to be suffering from those thoughts and cognitions. And um, there's this concept called cognitive dietary restraint. And it's something that I'm particularly interested at the moment and the idea of cognitive dietary restraint is that it's these these voices in our heads or these messages in our heads that play over and over um which tell us kind of how we should and shouldn't be eating or how much or too many calories or no you've already had something like that today or you need to exercise and it's actually the cognitive dietary restraint it's the thoughts and not necessarily the actions that follow that can have a really detrimental impact on health so, for example, we might think about um, menstruation and um, how typically when there's a loss of body fat or body weight, um, menstruation can stop. So you get loss of periods, which can have a lot of negative health impacts. And we, we've thought that this is due to kind of this diet culture, which causes a change in actions. So reduced energy intake, which leads to the um, physical prob problem. But actually, it can be cognitive dietary restraint that's actually having these impacts, regardless of, of what we may or may not then go on to, to eat or not eat. So I think it's something that we really need to be aware of. And I would really urge all the listeners to kind of get out there and and, and look for diet culture or, yeah, yeah. Or, or question the things you see and, and ask yourself, is this diet culture? And get angry it's it's actually Get angry with it's, diet it's, culture. it's very interesting what you said about the way it's portrayed and Kim Kardashian specifically because I read a statistic today um 
around the portrayal of Disney characters or, or cartoon characters and how they're portrayed mm. throughout um throughout whatever the last twenty or thirty years. And they often associate negative um negative personal characteristics or personality traits with those who are overweight and they the successful mm. people and the ones who, who do quite well are those, like you say, those idealistic um body figures who may not necessarily be representing um the general population. But um another thing I wanted to touch on was when we talk about things like my fitness pal or the Weight Watchers thing, um mm. I would be interested if you have looked into any of the research on who specifically it's affecting because obviously not everybody who uses my fitness pal for example will always develop an eating disorder so are, are mm. there a certain type of people who maybe might be drawn to my fitness pal or is my fitness pal maybe resulting in some kind of disordered eating patterns yeah i think that's a really interesting question and i think it's um kind of important to acknowledge that you know not everyone that is exposed to to these things will develop a clinical eating disorder but I think it kind of comes back to is this helpful as well and um, I I kind of think that anything that is kind of encouraging us to um, take action on these external cues so basically looking looking to trust our phones almost more than we trust our bodies so relying on somebody else telling us when we should eat what portion sizes we should have and how much movement we should do i mean when is that super super helpful and what could we do instead that could be more beneficial so rather than giving these i guess i guess they are quite simple to implement you download an app etc how could we really teach people to get in touch with kind of their own feelings and, and how these sensations like hunger or fullness, or a desire to exercise, or tiredness might manifest in the body. Um, and I think really, when talking about who may be most predisposed to responding negatively to these types of interventions, um, I would say it'd be quite similar to those predis predisposing factors for eating disorders. So um, kind of a predisposition to anxiety, perfectionism, um, reduced tolerance to stress, all of those kinds of um, personality traits early on might suggest that somebody is particularly vulnerable to a certain um, a certain app or intervention um, that you know it may be intended to you know be helpful, uh, but actually it it might not be in backfire. And I think it it really ties in with the Weight Watchers uh, for children um, and how quite a lot of that is, you know, it's from, a, uh, I think it's Stanford University study that's supporting that. But when you really grapple with some of the data, um, most of the studies they used were, they didn't have a great methodology and they had quite a high level of bias. So we really need to be asking yeah, I think ourselves. On, on that, sorry for interrupting, <laughs> um, on that, I, I recall recently reading that it was originally a family-based therapy intervention mm. which this app evidently is not it's one that that children should should self-monitor i think and just reverting back to what you spoke about earlier when you said that there's more factors that come into play when we're talking about somebody's eating behaviors i think one of them especially for children and this new weight watchers dieting app targeted at children it's important to note that 
a lot of their environment and their family are the ones who kind of shape their eating behavior. Mm. So when we talk about this new dieting app for children, what they eat is not always necessarily their choice. So so I can 100%. see why there's been such a backlash towards it. Yeah. And I think more more importantly, I think, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be young children's choice. I think, you know, we can teach children about food and nutrition through letting them cook with us, through um, letting them colour in pictures of food, through um, kind of lots of ways, grocery shopping, um, reading books with pictures of food, all of those kinds of things that are really exciting without necessarily giving them that full responsibility of having to make those important decisions. I mean, that can be the parent's role, the carer's role to offer up a beautiful diversity and variety. And I know there's things like budgets, constraints, and and I know that life does get in the way, but, you know, it can be the parent's job to offer up the food and the child to kind of choose what they would like to eat. Again, based on that intuition and and it's interesting because probably the time where we have the healthiest relationship with food is before diet culture comes in right it's when we're a child so you think about um a newborn infant it and and maybe you're breastfeeding or bottle feeding it it decides when it it cries when it's hungry it it has that signal it it takes the milk and then it stops and and when it's hungry again and kind of as a child, again, you know, the majority of children will self-regulate quite naturally. And, and when I say self-regulate, I don't mean in like a really kind of black and white fashion. I mean, they will intuitively, based on their own bodily signals, be able to pick up on what feels good and when they're hungry and when they're not. So it's okay to offer up some desserts, some fruits and vegetables. And, and it's okay to kind of frame these foods as as kind of equal and neutral Um with some gentle nutrition without going, you know, this is good and this is bad and you can't have any dessert unless you finish your main. And then I think when we already have that coming into play for these young children and we know that eating disorders can come in for children as young as eight or nine and it is getting younger, what does a traffic light system, and that's what this Carbo Health thing is based on, so you'd look at foods and there'd be red, amber, green. You know, what what is that adding again for children? Is this helpful? Is this helpful? Because... In my opinion, it associates guilt and shame and and kind of those negative emotions with the reds and, and difference with the greens. It becomes virtuous, it becomes a rule. And ultimately, um, for those that will be predisposed to this perfectionistic, this traits, the anxiety, all the rest of it, it is likely that this could push them into a clinical eating disorder. And for the rest, it will be a strong trigger for disordered eating habits. Yeah, I think another interesting thing that came out of the Weight Watchers dieting app, and just for anyone who doesn't know, Weight Watchers have released an app that is targeted at children tracking their foods. But one of the interesting things I I came across with that is that going back to what you spoke about with diet culture, having a moral value related to food, they put up a post of the success stories from using their app. And one of the success stories specifically um, stated that, I think it was an 11-year-old boy, said, um, my dad is finally, or my dad is, is proud of me because I started exercising. And that's insinuating that unless, unless he, he started exercising, that, that maybe his dad wasn't happy with him. Or that if you're overweight, you're doing something wrong. And until you lose weight, then that's when you're doing something right. And that is kind of reinforcing that idea of diet culture on children, right? 
A hundred percent. And I think, again, it goes, it goes back to this kind of entrenched weight stigma that we have in our society, or we could, we can call it fat phobia. Um, and we know that kind of these, this, this weight stigma has real physical and mental consequences for people. So it's kind of weight stigma so, and, and fat phobia. So kind of the prejudice towards um, the larger body that unfortunately is in, in a range of industries. And it's, it's actually the most sad, perhaps, that it's in the kind of medical industry because it ascribes kind of health to to different body types as well and just quickly massive segue joe i'm sorry i just want to urge anyone that um is feeling uncomfortable by by some of some of this to watch a video on youtube called poodle science because i think it really gets at um kind of the diversity of of body shapes and why we need to stop uh, pathologizing different bodies and to really appreciate the diversity in body types but just backtracking to weight stigma we know that weight stigma can increase risk for cardiovascular disease type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure so we know that this is a really problematic discourse that we have and and just like the other kind of entrenched kind of discrimination we have in our society this is one that we we need to be taking seriously because it has real genuine impacts and for this to be coming in for children as well is is even more damaging it's interesting because i read um the the neda reply to the weight watchers app and one of the stats that they included was that um, teenagers who self-report dieting are twice as likely to be overweight as those who don't self-report dieting regardless of where their starting weight uh, was regardless of where their starting point was and i think that's evidence to at least support or, or suggest that there's correlates there to to suggest that dieting does not necessarily work engaging in the kind of diet culture does not work for long-term weight loss and i think the percentages are quite mm. when we look at the stats i think the percentages are quite high in the amount of people who return to their um to return to their original starting weight so my question there would be we know kind of broadly that that diet culture or engaging in in these kind of diets doesn't work but is there mm. is there evidence to support any kind of changing of health behaviors for the positive that does work yeah so i'm really glad you touched on that because i think one of the big things that came up on my msc and we we've had lots of lectures in this is that there actually are almost zero studies to show that dieting is effective in the long term. So we know that individuals may temporarily lose um, some weight, um, but then they will likely regain this plus more. And that is because our bodies are so much more kind of complex than we might assume and kind of calories in, calories out doesn't really work. So for example, when you go on a diet, it's likely that your metabolism will slow down, uh, your hunger hormone ghrelin will increase, so you'll always feel slightly hungrier, and then it might not suppress as much. So when you do eat, it remains high. You may subconsciously start doing less um, physical activity, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean going to the gym. It just means that you might actually be more still or just less kind of little movement around maybe your desk or something. Um, we know that your temperature might drop, so at night you might be slightly cooler, so you're using less energy for heat. There's so much that goes on because 
our genetics are kind of hardwired for this um, hunter-gatherer society whereby there might have been long periods without food. So it's in our DNA when we, when we don't have food to kind of seek it out and eat as much of it as, as, as much of it as we can and to harvest the energy from it and to conserve energy in, in periods of famine. So it makes sense that this kind of whole dieting thing actually really changes our met- metabolism and our physiology and our hormones to actually then prioritize weight gain once we uh, stop the diet or, or we can't maintain the diet because it's so extreme. So that's kind of the first piece. We have so little evidence that dieting works. And then the next thing would be kind of, oh, but, you know, I'm not dieting. I'm just eating sensibly or eating healthily. And kind of, you know, can these be a positive? Well, I would say that any kind of eating regime where the aim is to kind of lose weight really kind of subscribes itself to diet culture and uh, personally I just think that has no benefit for anyone it doesn't kind of respect the body and again you're going to fall into this trap of kind of the body is smarter than you are and it will realize that actually it's not getting as much energy as it needs and actually I also think there's a massive piece um, to be said for um, kind of that dieting idea that, oh, I will be happy when I lose weight or my life can start when I lose weight. And really, there's absolutely um, no reason why your life can't start now or why you cannot be healthy at the weight you are currently at. And that's the piece that I, I would want to stress. And I guess that's a segue into health at every size, which is a concept coined by Linda Bacon. And there's kind of a lot of... Um, I wouldn't say backlash, but controversy around this this concept. And essentially, it was first developed as a social justice concept. So basically, it includes things like uh, weight inclusion. So all body types should have fair access to healthcare without stigma, um, health enhancement, and the, the people should receive respectful care. Because I think what happens for a lot of people in larger bodies once they um, visit a GP or, or a healthcare professional, you know, they're just, all of their kind of concerns are attributed to their weight and there might be lack of thorough investigation. And equally, people in smaller bodies will also lose out. So for example, you might have somebody in a smaller body that has metabolic syndrome. So that's kind of a combination of insulin resistance, um, uh, NAFLED, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, inflammation, And you might have somebody that comes in with metabolic syndrome but is in a smaller body and so the GP doesn't run the tests that are essential to investigate that pathology and then they are at higher risk of maybe cardiovascular disease or something like that further down the line. So in diet culture, in weight stigma, we all lose out. And so what I would say is when we ascribe to health at every size, which is not healthy at every size, it's not okay, every size is suddenly healthy because no size is inherently healthy. And I guess eating disorders or or at least anorexia would be a really good example of that because we know that fundamentally you can't be healthy when your BMI goes down to something, you know, goes goes lower than than what might be considered healthy. Um, But you can choose health at every size. And that means that you may start doing behaviors that are good for your health independently of weight loss, such as including some physical activity that feels good for you. And that doesn't have to be the gym, that doesn't have to be, I go five times a week and I have to log that in my phone and I get a tick. What feels good for you? Because it could literally just be walking to work. 
Um, it could be taking the dogs for a run. It might be starting a new hobby. It could be gardening or housework. Whatever it is that feels like a fit for you, it might be um, some gentle nutrition. So gentle nutrition, I like to think of as a form of nutrition which takes health, but also pleasure and taste preferences kind of into a full picture. So, you know, doing things that taste good and that feel good, but that also have you know, that uh, nutrient density. So that more typical kind of how we think of nutrition. But then also you can eat stuff that's not as nutritionally dense, but that provides pleasure and feeds other aspects of your health. Because let's face it, health is not just our physical health and it's not just our mental health. It is also our social health, our emotional health. It can be our kind of financial well-being. It can be all of these complex things that we need to kind of have in the frame. Um, and is not just, it can't just be reduced to um, physical activity and, and what we eat. It's far bigger than that. And I'm completely just agree. going on and on and on. So, <laughs> no. um, <laughs> and it's, I just, it's nice to hear somebody who's, who's passionate about what they, yeah. what they, what they speak about. Um, and anyway, um, just, I just, just gonna... going back to, sorry, just going back to one of your points there. Um, you were talking about the focus on kind of the, the behavior. Um, I know from my perspective, from a mental health perspective, we would always say that nobody should kind of be, be dieting or be actively trying to lose weight if they are struggling with any of their behaviors, such as, you know, if, the, if they have that associated guilt, if they have the associated emotional mm. um, reaction to food, that it's not appropriate to be deliberately trying to lose weight or engaging in kind of dieting activities until you repair your relationship with food first and you're you repair your relationship with yourself first because mm. i think that's one of those things that comes back to kind of be problematic in the future if you go dieting and you are a binge eater and you lose a certain amount of weight that that might that kind of binge eating behavior or the reasons for that binge eating behavior haven't really been tackled or haven't really been addressed and losing weight is not going to fix whatever is at the core of that so I think the recommendation there would certainly be to look to repair your relationship with food and yourself first and whether that be with a mental health professional or a clinical dietitian but after that you were speaking about the focus on on behaviors so the health at every size you're talking about focusing on maybe exercise um or nutrition but not in a way that is actively engaging in in weight loss is that what i is that what I'm, yeah where you're trying to yeah. get across that's exactly what i'm what i'm trying to get across so because we know that dieting is so ineffective and for i mean 95 percent of people they may temporarily lose weight and then gain it back um which leads actually to weight cycling and it's weight cycling that um, kind of scholars like Linda Bacon, who wrote the Health Every Size book, which I highly recommend, um, actually attributes to some of these um, kind of conditions that might increase mortality. So traditionally would think that um, a higher BMI might be associated with a high risk of mortality, but this might actually be due to this weight cycling. So yeah, that's what I would be saying. So for somebody that might present with binge eating disorder, um, really looking to repair their relationship with food, identifying those those triggers, which quite frequently might be, frankly, that they that one is undernourished and is really freaking hungry. And that leads to actually after a really, really intense dieting behavior and rigid rules um, that might lead to a binge. Um, actually then trying to go back to weight loss would just be kind of 
starting the process essentially all over again. So what I might recommend for an individual that might present with binge eating disorder is to do the work on really repairing their relationship with food and then perhaps um, looking to, to that more intuitive eating framework where there would be support with body image and self-worth at, the, at, their, at their current weight um, and kind of looking at um, all those emotional triggers and, and really finding a lifestyle that fits them within their current body weight and and body image is is such a key part of this healing process I think and and really isn't is sometimes sort of not necessarily dealt with by the therapist and and not necessarily dealt with by the nutrition professional and can be a bit forgotten and so maybe body image would also play a key role in in that therapy. Yeah because we we know I think binge eating would be the area out of all of the eating disorders that I would probably have the most knowledge on. Um, not an expert by any means, but we know that people who engage in binging um, often are triggered by those feelings of shame and guilt that are kind of reinforced or exacerbated by those food rules that you talked about. The idea 100%. that oh, I can't eat after 6pm or if I eat chocolate, I've broken my whatever diet or whatever that tends to be. It's not necessarily the the going out of your um diet that's that's the issue but it's the related emotional distress Mm -hmm. um of going outside for example going over your calories or whatever that that could be so i think one of the ideas or one of the movements that i wanted to talk to you about um is intuitive eating because it's been suggested that it can be quite helpful for maybe not as the sole treatment but as as certainly as part of a, a positive approach for for eating disorders could you let people know maybe what the intuitive eating approach is? Yeah, so um, intuitive eating is getting quite a lot of airtime at the moment. And I think there's this quite common misconception that it's kind of the hunger and fullness diet or it's the eat whatever you want, whenever you want diet. Um, But really intuitive eating is an evidence-based paradigm. It was developed by um, Evelyn Trimble and Elise Reschke, um, who are both based in the US. And essentially, they were working with uh, clients over a long period of time trying to help them lose weight. And like I think a lot of nutritional professionals come to, they realize that actually this wasn't their clients that couldn't do it. There was something going on and and dieting was was really ineffective. So essentially, intuitive eating is a 10 principle framework. You cannot wake up tomorrow and decide, hey, I'm an intuitive eater now. It's something that really needs a lot of work. Um, often to it helps to work with a nutrition professional whilst kind of adopting the principles of intuitive eating. And the 10 principles um, can be worked through in order. They're, they're kind of designed to go step by step, but you, you could probably mix around a bit. So it all starts with rejecting the diet mentality. That's number one. So you reject this idea that you need to be making yourself smaller and you reject that there's any morality linked with food. And you have freedom to basically eat more of those things that you would like to or that you've had off limits or foods that have been on your shit list. Um, so, you know, they, they, those things that are on your shit list that, that you really don't allow yourself except for maybe on Christmas Day and then eat the whole box or whatever it is. Um, and then it's really looking at kind of challenging the food police. Um, so that inner critic voice in your head that has those rules and, and obviously they come from an external source and making peace with food. So, you know, allowing yourself to 
eat the foods that that you would like to eat. It then kind of looks a bit more at honoring your hunger and respecting your fullness. So it kind of has this mindfulness concept uh, running through it, where you do a lot of work kind of feeling what those sensations are like, thinking about what hunger feels like and when that presents for you. And it might not be in kind of fixed meal times like we have. It might not be in that fixed lunch time that you, you might have always had at school. It might be that your hunger comes on earlier and, and that's okay. Um, so there's those, those um, principles. And then there's thinking about honoring your feelings without using food. So kind of um, food we can often use um, emotionally. So we think of emotional eating. Uh, which I don't necessarily think is always bad. Um, We use food to celebrate. We use food um, for lots of cultural traditions. It is all right to use food to soothe ourselves. Um, The real issue lies on when that's the only coping mechanism we have. Um, But that it really looks at that and kind of what other kind of self-care techniques we might be able to use for when we're feeling different emotions and, and identifying those. Um, and respecting our bodies. So kind of thinking about this whole body image piece. And then finally, it ends with kind of exercising for pleasure or what I like to call joyful movement um, and honoring your health with gentle nutrition. So I guess those last two kind of link in with that health at every size piece um, and this focus that that you can have an interest in health. You can look after your health. You can... um, you know, have that desire and and it can be extremely effective, but it doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be a rule and it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, And that's what I love about intuitive eating is essentially, unless you're doing it to really lose weight, you can't really do it wrong. Um, And whilst hunger and fullness are a big part of it, it is okay to eat when you're not hungry. For example, you might be going out for a late dinner and and need an extra snack or, um, you know, you might be full from a meal but actually it's a birthday cake and you want to join in on that celebration so there is no rules and I really just want to also very quickly address that intuitive eating is you can eat whatever you want when you're not because the whole point of intuitive eating is kind of listening to your body and 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 equally respecting those signals and how food might make you feel and I don't know about you Joe, but I've just been in Italy for a week and pretty much had leftover pasta from breakfast and pasta for lunch and pasta for dinner and after five days of that it was great for the first few I, I loved it I was in Italy and you know pasta is is something I have a lot at home, but it was really exciting to be having it with, you know, truffle and burrata and all of these exciting, wonderful Italian foods. But after a few days, I no longer felt good. I actually wanted something other than pasta. So it's not this eat what you want whenever you want, because whilst you might think initially you're going to go overboard on these foods, like I did with the excitement of pasta in Italy, eventually you're actually not going to feel good and you're probably going to want to eat something different. Um, So... I think that's really important to debunk those two major myths around intuitive eating. Um, And it's certainly not about weight loss, although evidence does suggest that intuitive eaters have more weight stability, a lower BMI, um, less risk of eating disorders and a whole load of other um, beneficial impacts. And there's some really great research and studies to show that. And I'll be really happy to send those to you if you want to include them in the show notes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, One thing you mentioned there is is specifically around food rules and that one of the kind of approaches is that there are no rules. And when I asked earlier about what is successful in the dieting literature or when people make behavior change, what is successful? One of the two things that they show to be a positive when you're trying to change your behaviors in relation to exercise or nutrition 
is that idea of flexible thinking. So uh, mm. what we know, it is limited, while it is limited. Um, what we do know is that flexible thinking is certainly a positive and getting rid of those food rules is definitely a step in the right direction. One of the other things that I guess the literature supports in terms of behavior change is getting the appropriate support. So whether that's through a mental health professional or a clinical dietitian or whoever you're struggling with, those two things are the best way to first repair your relationship with food, I guess. Um, now, I don't know your opinions on this, but if you got to the stage where you did, for example, remove the rules and you had gone through, for example, intuitive eating training, let's say, or, or experience or education around intuitive eating, and you found like you got a grasp of it, you may then be in a position to make some of those um, behavior changes. Is that Would that be... A, a positive or an, or a negative yeah i think what that what it keeps coming back to is um then reascribing to diet culture and engaging in these behaviors that we know are not effective so we know that dieting for 95 percent of people is going to lead to weight regain plus more one third to two thirds of dieters will regain weight plus more so i think it's really about acknowledging those facts around um, dieting and what we might call the weight-centric approach is that ultimately, at the end of it, there will always, most likely, be failure. And and so that will kind of... That, that's not the fault of the individual engaging in these behaviours. And it's equally not the fault of the individual to want to engage in those behaviours because we live in a society that values slenderness and that values that aesthetic ideal. So ultimately, you know, we've all probably been in that position where we've wanted to lose weight or we thought that life would be a bit better. But the reality is we are all supposed to look slightly different and that is a, a beautiful thing. And it's really about empowering ourselves with the information that, that dieting doesn't work. So where can self-acceptance come in? Where can improving our health come in? Where can actually channeling the energy that we might put into exercising when it feels like punishment or denying ourselves food we'd like to eat where can that energy go that can actually enrich our lives and our experiences that where really our, our body size or shape doesn't matter so for example uh, travel or social relationships or maybe it's a hobby or a career that you really want to take up and using kind of that mental energy, and, and again, I've talked about cognitive dietary restraint and the, the dangers of that, into somewhere else. Because frankly, dieting is most likely going to lead to those negative impacts that, that I talked about. And that's not just a risk of, of eating disorder, that's weight cycling, which again, might be the reason that we ascribe um the kind of higher risk of mortality to the higher end of the BMI because this kind of yo-yoing of body weight up and down can have seriously detrimental effects for inflammation, our blood pressure, etc. And how can we improve our health if, if that is a desire, which it might not be for everyone, independently of weight loss? So, you know, it might be thinking about our social health. Um, so, you know, specifically um, kind of how might social interactions and engagements um, enrich our kind of well-being, our mental well-being, our psychological well-being, where like food actually is there, but it's it's not the most important thing. And actually it's that is an experience for our social health. 
Um, so it's all these kind of nuances. And I think then, you know, where is dieting really healthy and da da da? You know, it, it is all right to eat those nutritionally dense foods. And, and you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a real proponent of that. I've done three years now studying nutrition. I'm, I'm not anti health, I'm not anti having a varied and balanced diet, but I'm anti kind of ascribing this real kind of disgust and um, damaging language to foods that might enrich those other, again, aspects of our health and that provide pleasure. And it is okay to eat those foods and not have too many rules about them. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So you covered some of the, um, I guess you, you briefly mentioned some of kind of the red flags when people are, are struggling. Um, and just before we wrap up, it might be worth um, just covering for the people at home. When when is this problematic for somebody? For people listening to this today who may or may not be struggling already with, with their food, when is it a definite no or when is it kind of a clear red flag as to maybe I need more support here or maybe what I'm doing isn't the way forward? Yeah, I think it's really difficult because there's such a spectrum with eating disorders and disordered eating. And, um, you know, one might be really struggling with behaviours and cognitions, but um, be a perfectly normal weight. And in the UK, sometimes that can be a real barrier to treatment. Um, so I would say that, you know, um, there's this thing called the scoff test. So it's, um, do you make yourself sick? Um, I'm just trying to find the others. Um, there is kind of a framework people can use. So it's, do you make yourself sick um, around food? Um, do you... Oh, sorry, I'm just trying to find it. Sorry, I've just remembered it. And it's a really good one that people can ask themselves. But essentially, if there are kind of lots of thoughts going on in your head, if you're finding it difficult to eat kind of meals, if people around you are concerned about you, then that might be a sign that you need more support. And in the UK with um, NHS often, it's really, it kind of is the need of the individual to really advocate for themselves once they're in front of the GP because the GP might not have that much training around kind of eating disorders or disordered eating or unfortunately at the moment BMI can block access to treatment. So there are also lots of self-help um, tools that people can engage in. There's the Health at Every Size literature, so the book by Linda Bacon, um, the Intuitive Eating uh, book by um, Evelyn Trimble and Elise Resch. There's uh, Laura Thomas's fantastic book, Just Eat It. Um, and there are kind of courses run by these individuals where you can engage in kind of self-help. But if you are really struggling, my main, main piece of advice would be don't wait for it to get worse. You're worthy of help. You are worthy of support and there is support out there. So please, please reach out to somebody you trust, to the GP, to a helpline. Uh, Mind and Beat have fantastic helplines that I think run all days of the year. Um, and, and don't think that it's not bad enough or it can wait because ultimately we know the damaging nature of these things and with eating disorders specifically, um, there is kind of a threshold, I think it's about three years. Um, and if one kind of gets into treatment within that three-year threshold, their, their chances of recovery are much higher. Now, that's not to say that you cannot recover. We know that anyone can recover from an eating disorder at any time, even with a 20-year with a history, recovery is always possible. 
But um, we do know that early intervention can be a significant factor in improving chances of recovery. And I've just got this scoff questionnaire back up. Um, so the questions you might ask yourself is, do you make yourself sick because you feel uncomfortably full? Do you worry that you've lost control over how much you eat? Have you recently lost more than one stone in a three-month period? Do you believe yourself fat when others say you are too thin? And would you say food dominates your life? So depending on kind of how you answered those, that might be an indicator of, um, of if you answered yes to a lot of those questions, it might be a clear indicator that it would be very beneficial to get some help. But if you think you are struggling, then please, please do reach out for help. Um, confide in somebody you trust. It might be a teacher at school. It might be um, a counsellor at university or somebody in the workplace. Um, because these things can get worse over time. And I think there's a real tendency to think, oh, it's not that bad. It can wait. And, you know, these things are with us every single day. And food is incredibly important even if it's not necessarily a pleasure or a joy for you or at least right now uh, we need food every day to keep us alive and it's it's you know a gateway to so many other things albeit social relationships or tradition or cultural or religious um, celebrations so I would really urge you to to seek professional support if if that's something you feel like you would yeah I think that's a really good message because we know from the mental health side of things that there are only two mental health disorders that can actually result in mortality. And one of them is eating disorders alongside, alongside mm. addiction. So I think the important, like you cannot stress the importance of going to get support, even if you do think, oh, it can wait or it's not that important right now. Um, like you said, if you answered kind of any of the questions or if you identified with any of the symptoms, even that we've spoke about today, that you should definitely... Um, talk to your gp or talk to some sort of professional support to see what they can do um now just to finish up because i am very wary of the time if you want to give a kind of take-home message for anyone who's listening um what would it be so um i did have a little think about this one because i felt like it was important um so my take-home message would be that there is so much more to life than what you eat, what you look like, and how much you exercise. And it's okay if these things um, are part of your routine or are important to you or make you feel good. But there is so much more else beyond that too. And so my take home would be to kind of really think about um, what makes you tick, your hopes and dreams, uh, kind of goals, and to make sure that they are equally part of the picture too. And to anyone that is struggling with a clinical eating disorder, that there is help out there, there is support out there, and that recovery is 100% possible. Well, that's a really beautiful message. Um, thank you very much, Isabella. Um, can you let everybody know where to find you if they want to reach you on your social media platforms or whatever it is? Yes, so I am under the handle at Isa Robinson underscore. So that's Isa, I-S-A, and then Robinson like the fruit squash and then underscore. Um, my website is currently slightly under construction just because I've kind of changed names <laughs> and I'm going through a transition between MSC to um, new chapter. So that will kind of be a work in progress but I'm pretty active on my social media and so please feel free to get in touch there um, and I will 
try and get back to you as soon as possible. Isa, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That was very, much. very valuable. And I'm sure um, everybody got uh, lots of information from it and lots of interesting perspectives. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much, Joe.